If I were to distill the four ingredients of writing and the four reasons people come for writing coaching, it starts like this. Memory, imagination, observation, questions about the world and ourselves in it. We come to the blank page to work stuff out and in doing so to connect. I want to honour and explore that with a different writer, sometimes more than one writer and sometimes more than one genre each episode. We'll be talking about the memory, the observation, the imagination that joins the bits together, or the questions about the world and ourselves that led those writers to go on those journeys. At the end of that discussion, there'll be a writing exercise and a theme or question that is relevant to that that says now you, you lead. It's a place to exercise your memory, your imagination, and your sense of your right to those things. Just like the physical gym, if you turn up once a year, (laughs) then the differences don't happen quite as quickly. But if you bring in good writing habits every day, at least every week, regularly in your life, then you do see the difference. And the writing confidence doesn't feel like confidence. It feels like focus. It feels like interest. It feels like curiosity. I'm Rachel Knightley. Welcome to the Writer's Gym. I truly, truly wish that the module I was asked to convene this year for Roehampton University had been around when I was a BA student there. It's called the business of writing. It's a phrase we use a lot in our freelance lives that it's not about seeing it as just the creative writing. It's about how you look at your work as a business and how you approach journals, independent publishers, agents to get your work to the right people and to keep growing as a writer as you do that. One of the speakers that I invited is Dan Coxon, and I invited him back to this Writer's Gym session this month. Dan is an award-winning editor and writer based in London. His non-fiction anthology, Writing the Uncanny, co-edited with Richard Hurst, won the British Fantasy Award for Best Non-Fiction in 2022, and his short story collection, Only the Broken Remain, published by Black Shuck Books, was shortlisted for two British Fantasy Awards in 2021. In 2018, his anthology of British folk horror, The Dreaming Isle, from Unsung Stories, was shortlisted for a British Fantasy Award and a Shirley Jackson Award. His short stories have appeared in various anthologies, including Great British Horror 7 and Beyond the Veil. His latest anthology, Isolation, was published by Titan Books in September 2022. In terms of what we are going to do, talk about, get out of this, what I'm fascinated by, it's two things at once. It's the conversation that we had about the things that really, really piss you off in terms of writing advice. <laughs> yes. Like write, write, write every day. Yeah. So it's writing advice or the way that writing advice is given or received. Yes. Um, but it's also, I think, in terms of what's rung true for us in our lives, what's actually worked. So yeah. that for me is the duality. What about and I think, I think the two are connected for me as well, to be honest, because um, I think that's the problem. I think a lot of writing advice is given like it's, it's the rules, like it's, uh, it's prescriptive. But in actual fact, you have to find out what works for you, don't you? It's a, <laughs> and any idea that just because something worked for me, it's going to work for everyone else, I think is kind of fundamentally wrong. And I think a lot of the older writing advice is presented like that, like the write every day 
advice. Um, and that's, that's the one that you hate, right? That's the one. But you I don't hate it. I think I've been a bit too strong about it. I don't hate it, and I think for some people it has worked really well. And I think there are some things it teaches you to do that are very useful. But it's just not possible for everyone, and especially if you're quite a kind of goal-oriented type person, to set that as your goal, I think is potentially quite dangerous. Because for a lot of us, if we have kids or families or jobs that take a lot of our time or whatever, we might not be able to do it. And then you feel like you failed before you're even out the gate because you've not written every day. And I just don't think it's necessary. I do also think that, I mean, I know there are some people who very rigidly stick to it and produce vast amounts of work and it really works for them. But also, I think for some people, you're better off writing maybe three or four really good stories a year (laughs) than just trying to churn out more and more and more and more and more and more and not worrying about the quality. He seems to me to be very quantity-based rather than quality-based. And I think there's for a lot of people, there should be more of a focus on quality as well. For me, oh yeah, absolutely. For (laughs) for me, there's there's something in there about the squeamishness of it as well, that when we talk about, I mean, I, I love the phrase vomit draft, simply because vomit for most people is not a word we associate with having loads of fun and it all going exactly as we want. <laughs> but if it's something that makes you that you have to get out there and if you can just get that over with and yes. not be squeamish about it, then things get better after that. And I sort of feel like there is a comparison with write every day as well, that if it's a case of I'm doing this, but I'm not enjoying it, I must be doing it wrong, then that's not going to work and that's going to be more punishment than use. But if on the other hand, the squeamishness is what leaves, as in, I have put down, I have transcribed the idea that has shown up in my head or the thought that has turned up in my head, and I'm going to leave this note for future me, who's going to be in a more of an editing development sort of place. That to me works, but it's it's not an order then. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, uh, the, I think part of the problem with the write every day also is the simplicity of, <laughs> of the instruction write every day, because I, that's why I, I kind of tweak it to say, try, try and do the business of writing every day, because quite often that business of writing isn't writing, it can be researching, it can be editing, you know, it can be lots of different jobs. So for example, I mean, I, I think where some people sometimes go wrong is they feel they have to be churning out new material, new material, new material all the time and keep writing and keep that going. And eventually they're going to kind of hit the mother load and, and they're going to be vomiting up gold. And I just don't think it works like that. <laughs> I think you need to have your editing time. You need to have time for things to sit and kind of percolate and kind of work through your consciousness a bit. And it doesn't allow for any of that. So I do think one of the things that is very good with that with with that kind of advice the right of day advice is that it gets you in the habit of just getting that draft out quickly uh, and just getting on with it and getting that first draft done so i think that is good i think the other thing that it does really well is if you write a lot i think you kind of tend to hit a certain point where you've written so many words that you don't hold on to them quite so tightly and it actually makes editing a lot easier so if you're only writing, say, three stories a year, I think you tend to hold on to those very tightly because they feel very important, very personal, and you've put a lot of time and effort into each individual one. And I think that makes editing very difficult because then when you come to the editing process, you tend to be much more precious about not deleting things or removing whole sections or rewriting. Or Whereas I think you're much less precious about that when you've done lots of writing. If you have done lots of lots of writing, each individual sentence or paragraph or page or whatever becomes less important it's just a drop in the ocean if i handed you a magic wand and asked you to use it to rewrite the advice canon what would you want people to hear instead 
Well, see, I hate advice, Canon. This is the problem, I think. Is I always, <laughs> as soon as you put anything down as advice, I kind of hate it. So even when I give advice, I then start hating the advice that I've given. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds too prescriptive. I mean, I think the best thing to do is, to, is, in all honesty, to keep reading around different pieces of advice and take what you need out of those pieces of advice. Because I don't think, you know, I could probably come up with a, a list of advice that worked for me, but I could quite easily hand it to someone else and it'll be terrible for them because I don't think there is one route through it all. And actually, I've got quite into lately um, reading more and more kind of writing guides and things from kind of all different angles, some quite kind of technical ones and some much more just kind of inspirational ones. And Because I think, again, when I first started reading those, when I was starting out, I didn't get on with them because I read each one like it was a Bible and I had to be doing everything that was in it or I was somehow doing it wrong. Uh, and I found that really frustrating and quite constrictive and it quite often didn't work for me. Whereas now I'm much happier to just cherry pick. So I'll, I'll read a book and maybe take two or three bits of advice out of it. But that's that's a good book. If I've taken three really solid bits of writing advice that really helped me, that's a good book. I don't need to worry too much about the rest of it. Funny hearing you say that about Bibles because one of the things that I was that I talk about and I, I write about a lot is when people talk about their experiences from religion my experience of growing up in in religion was very very cultural and it wasn't these stories happened and you have to literally believe these stories happened it was much more of a future English literature student start in the world because it was not they happened and we have to believe it it's look they might have happened and if so fine but very much not the point what do these stories mean to you what what's what's the message or the thought that you take forward in your life and so that to me was what religion was and that's liberal judaism it's it's not orthodox judaism it's not christianity but when i hear a bunch of people say about religion what they don't like about religion they tend to be talking about being told they have to think something or they have to do something and it reminds me so much of the conversation that we have around writing advice that it's yes. not about what you come out with it's about following these rules to get you there which is of course the wrong way up entirely isn't it yeah it is entirely and i i think i mean i'm just just thinking on it now i mean the one that's always recommended for horror genre is stephen king's on writing and even outside of horror genre i've seen it recommended to kind of quite literary um writing groups and things and I read on writing and it's a it's a nice enough read I quite enjoyed it I mean a lot of it's autobiographical for starters so there's not really a huge amount of writing advice content in it and even what there is feels very dated and again it was what worked for Stephen King but you know we're not all going to go out and be Stephen King <laughs> we're all doing our own things. Can I stay with that for a second because that's so interesting hearing you say that because listening to you talk about advice and how it works individually to me that's that's like that's the best kind of memoir because like with Toast, Nigel Slater, which I love, or um, I Am, I Am, I Am, Maggie O'Farrell, or any any memoir where, where the, I mean, in ideally a memoir always, the, the, um, the way in which you're writing is to do with that subject. Isn't that exactly what you'd want writing advice to be? like? What yeah, and doing? I kind of think it is. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think the issue, the biggest issue I have with it is probably with the title on writing. Because I think because of that, it tends to be sold or people tend to think it is a writing guide which it isn't. It's a memoir, which has some really useful kind of tips and advice and stuff. But it's not a writing guide. It, it's, it's Stephen King's memoir <laughs> that has a few bits of like kind of advice thrown in for good measure. What's so frustrating about that is one of the best ones for horror, but for, for all genres that I found was Margaret Atwood's what was originally published as Negotiating with the Dead, and then yes. they changed the title to On Writers and Writing. Yes. <laughs> thus missing the whole Two, two sides point of the whole thing that there's the you that does the writing there's the you that does the living yeah and I mean and that's 
yeah. you know, that's marketing departments, isn't it? So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to blame Stephen King. Maybe someone else decided it had to be called on writing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, they like to market these things and pitch these things. I think I'd still have a copy of Negotiating the Dead with the original title. Me too. <laughs> Which I'll hang on to. Is it the I... one with the spooky twins on the front? Yes, that's the yes. one. Yeah. Yes. I don't know quite where it is, somewhere in here, I think. But um yeah. But yeah, I mean, that sort of thing I think is really useful. And in fact, I'm reading one by uh, Chuck Wendig at the moment. I'm just kind of dipping in and out of it. And again, his it's very personal. He has lots of kind of like anecdotes about his dad and about his kid and how they tell stories and how that works and doesn't work and what that means for storytelling. And, and it's kind of interesting. I, I'm kind of enjoying that one, not necessarily because it has any kind of gold nuggets of advice that I've not seen anywhere else, but it's just the way it kind of connects the dots and shows how you live a writer's life rather than just sit down and do writing and then walk away and do something else. And I do think that's that's true for most people who I know who are successful writers, is that it's a life. Whether you do another job or not, you're constantly thinking about writing and you're reading books and you're writing, whether it be articles or short stories or novels or whatever it is that you do, or maybe all of the above. You're just constantly engaging and your brain is constantly engaged with how do I do this? How do I do this better? How do I do this in different ways? And that's what I find really interesting. I kind of really enjoy that. And that self-perception is so important, isn't it? That acknowledging that 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 is the life, that you are living a writing life, manages to knock through a few of those fences that I think when we're newer to it, it can be so tempting to not see yourself as a writer until you've done A, B and C. And actually that's, that's the reverse as well, that when you see yourself as a writer, you will make that time and you will make those sacrifices actually. Yeah, and I've, I've done a, um, a couple of events for recently with um, universities, and it's been interesting talking to students, because I think there was a time when kind of getting published, getting a novel published by one of the big five was kind of like, that was that was the goal at the end. That was, that was the top of the mountain that you were aiming for. And everyone kind of almost wanted to jump straight to that. It's like, well, I've got to have this big debut novel with the big five, and, that's that, and then I'm going to be a writer once I've done that. And it was quite nice to see that they they were actually already being taught that that's not the case. And their heads are in very different places. And I did some um, one-to-ones at York St. John University. And all the, the students that I saw, they were all thinking of, well, either this small press publisher or this small press publisher is probably a good home for what I'm working on. Not like, I'm, I'm, I want this to be big and it's got to be an enormous debut with Penguin or whatever. But like, you know, this is what I love doing. And this is probably a good home for it with this independent press which I think is a much more healthy way of looking at it. And then, you know, great if, you know, maybe years down the line or maybe immediately you write something which really takes off. Brilliant. But that's not going to happen to everyone. Not everybody is going to have that path where you become a big bestseller. And it doesn't mean you're not a writer. You can be doing what you do and have a day job and have 30, 40 books published all with independent presses. And that can be your writing career. And you can have quite a large readership from having that kind of writing career. It doesn't have to be this one sort of model which we saw for so long. Um, there was an article quite recently, wasn't there? I think it was in The Guardian, though it was probably other places, about this uh, this new survey of debut authors and how they were all, everyone was dissatisfied with their experience and it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And, and I think it's, it's that old model of like, you're going to have this one big debut novel and it's going to be amazing and your life is going to change. And, and it's just not, it's like, you know, one time in a million that happens, but... But everybody else, that's not what happens for most people. And even when it does, that's not always the happiest route, is it? Because, I mean, I, no. I have friends who've had that happen early 
and have said to me and to my students who you came to talk to in the business yeah. of writing module that a couple of people have, have said to all of us, this did happen to me at 25.30. However, if it hadn't happened to me at 25.30 and I'd gone off and got to know myself as a writer and done a bunch of things and met a bunch of people and done that and then done this later. I mean, of course, we never know, but it wouldn't necessarily be worse. We're and not saying it brings it better. Yeah, I mean, it brings its own pressures as well, because then there's an immediate pressure to, to produce another novel. Quite often you're contracted to produce a second novel, quite often with a very limited time frame. So quite, you might have been working for sort of like, you know, say five years, six years, seven years on that first debut. And then suddenly you're, you're expected to produce something else within a year that's as of good a standard, if not better. <laughs> and the pressures that come with that are enormous. And, and then, you need to uh, find the fun, don't you? And in that situation, yeah. you don't find the fun, the curiosity. Yeah. And the way the publishing industry is nowadays as well, they always tend to look back at your last one or two books and how well they've sold. If that first one doesn't sell very well, that brings its own pressures as well. Because there have been, I mean, multiple authors who've had a kind of big debuts published that didn't do as well as they were expected to do. And then you almost never see them again because they just kind of collapse under the weight of that that book having failed so they can't get the second one off the ground and it just kind of you know it stops being fun like you say it, it takes away what they did for in the first place um, which makes it harder to spring back when you need to spring back yes yeah or equally as well i've seen um if people have kind of relatively successful debuts but the kind of were kind of marketed in a way different to the direction they wanted to go in because kind of once the way it works publishing is once that that's out with the publisher things like marketing and stuff especially with bigger publishers tends to be more or less out of your hands <laughs> i mean they might you know sort of say well what do you think of this and you're supposed to just say oh that's very nice <laughs> <laughs> and then they just move on with it anyway but um yeah i kind of feel like there have been a couple at least a couple of people i know where that's kind of happened where it's kind of like they've written a book it's been pitched as this and it's like okay now they're, they're now the person that writes that type of book because that's the way they've been marketed but that wasn't what they wanted to do in the first place and they've ended up kind of being shifted off into a different genre or a different kind of style of writing without really wanting to be there you're, um, you're reminding me of one of my favorites is tom cox who was the cat guy writing about yes. cats and had to work very hard to break away from being the cat guy and yeah, yeah. go wider and weirder and Substack's been a quite a massive thing for that, hasn't it? Because it, it has. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my first book I actually got published. I'm trying to see if I've got a copy of it here, but I don't think I have. I've got some somewhere. Um, was a, a little book <laughs> uh, called The Wee Book of Scotland. Oh, there it is. That's Take it, a right. photo of it, and I will include <laughs> it as an image. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, I Wee Book of Scotland. Yeah. Um, I will do. I'll send you a photo. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's out of print now. Um, but it sold lots. Uh, I think final sales figures were something stupid like 60,000 copies or something I mean it was a lot of copies whatever it was it was in the tens of thousands um I didn't make very much money off it because it was such a low price point and stuff but yeah and then it was like well how do I go from that to writing the kind of stuff that I want to write so how <laughs> it, did you uh, it took a long time basically I thought because of that that uh, I decided to try and do uh, travel writing at first and I was doing lots of traveling at the time to be fair as well we were going traveling for a year in Australia and New Zealand and Fiji and stuff and I was kind of like okay well I, I think you know that's a natural progression I've done this which has been kind of successful it's non-fiction it's about Scotland maybe kind of travel writing something I could do and I did some courses I wrote a book and then uh, self-published it on New Zealand um, which actually did pretty well uh, and was um actually used as research for an ITV series at one point and stuff. So it did okay. Um, and I think that for self-publishing actually did pretty well looking back on it. And I think it was, 
it was quite a sensible move for that particular book because there's a market for travel writing there's a very well-defined market that i could sell it quite well to it actually still sells interesting um but then I, I basically had to take a break and then i was trying to write uh literary fiction uh so when i was living in america and trying to get into the kind of big journals and things in america but they're all full of um the uh, MA students and stuff in America. So it was just uh, impossible to get into them without a writing degree and without that kind of knowledge of what it was they wanted and were looking for. And I just became really despondent about it all. And I ended up, by the longest route possible, just writing stuff that I wanted to write because nothing was getting published. So I just ended up writing things I wanted to write. And it just came out of that, really, that I I quite like writing weird, slightly scary things. And was there a sort of light bulb moment of weird and scary I will go and find it or did weird and scary find you um there was a so there's one particular story that I always reference actually which is in um green fingers my uh black shuck like mini collection um called what's it called it's called among the pines I think um but I always I just kind of cite that as the turning point because I was kind of writing for a literary market um but at the time I was still trying to kind of break into kind of literary magazines and things um and it just came out in this really dark weird way and I just I liked it more than anything else I'd written um and I just thought well why am I spending my time avoiding doing this I actually did I wrote it in one session as well which is quite unusual for me quite often I I have to do it for several sessions just because I have a family and kids and that kind of stuff um we were actually we were on holiday in centre parks and it is partly based on being on holiday in centre parks and the sheer horror of being (laughs) on holiday in centre parks um but um yeah, and it just it came out in this really weird, spooky, odd way. And I just thought, I I really like this one. Well, regardless of what happens with it or where it goes, I kind of like, I this is what I want to do. So I started trying to write more stuff like that, basically. Um, I fell in with a bunch of people who were also trying to do the same sort of thing. And I think, you know, we've spoken before about community and how important it is. And that was kind of a big part of it as well, is I met a bunch of people, um, including sort of um, George uh, Sanderson, who was on some stories at the time, uh, Gary Budden, who was also doing Unsung at that point, possibly still shortly afterwards. Dan Carpenter, who's now uh, working at Titan, but he also was writing stuff. I mean, all of us were writing these kind of weird things. And suddenly it's like, OK, well, maybe it's not that weird. Maybe actually there's a market for this. And I think it was Gary who originally uh, encouraged me to go to a fantasy con. And then I met a whole bunch of other people who were also doing all this kind of stuff. And I'm trying to get my timeline right. Was that before only the broken remain? Because you you'd written yes. the first one. Yeah, that so that was uh, that was all before. That was kind of like building up to. So Green Fingers, uh, the the mini collection, only broken remain actually came out in the same year. They were like April and November, I think, um, of the same year, whatever year that was. I've lost track of time completely. Twenty one, maybe. Yeah, but it was a, there was a kind of a long build up to that. So actually, I've got Green Fingers here. So that story that I'm talking about, the one that uh, was the Centre Park story, as it tends to be called, Among the Pines, that was published in 2013. Um, So that is pretty much the oldest of any of the stories that I've got collected anywhere, I think. Yeah, I think it is. Um, And it took, yeah, so it took, what, uh, seven, eight years to kind of get around to actually having a body of that kind of stuff and to to kind of settle into it and feel like I knew what I was doing. Because uh, in those early years, I was still writing some more, I don't know, I don't want to call them normal stories, but kind of less weird hmm. stories, less uncanny, less weird, less whatever. Um, 
they're a more kind of straightforward general fiction um so that that was for a while for like three or four years it was kind of interspersed between the two and some things would turn out odd and some things would turn out normal um and then i settled much more on okay well uh, this is what i want to do i'd kind of met the community of people by that point i've been to some fancy cons um and i was like okay there's a market for this kind of stuff this is what i enjoy writing i'm just going to stick with this for now it's almost like you've given it a face that it was always there but toned down but seeing that there was that community the weird thing is as well certainly i mean it was more i think when i was in america than here but it it was very much viewed as a genre was viewed as being somehow lesser than the the kind of general fiction even if you weren't particularly literary uh, the just general fiction was seen as being like the way to go uh, and genre fiction was somehow sort of looked down and sneered at the big turning point for me was discovering that actually you can earn more money (laughs) writing (laughs) genre stuff by quite a large margin than you can writing that kind of literary general fiction i mean literary general fiction there's lots of very good literary magazines that for one reason or another either don't pay or they paid like a cursory payment so the first time i got paid like 300 quid or something for a story i was like why was i bothering with all this literary general fiction stuff i could have been writing horror this whole time and there's actually a market and people actually pay money for it and also what i find encouraging from a sort of personal development self-realization point of view i think it's never about going in one direction or another you you found that you broke away from literary and you went into genre and now look where you are you're bringing genre into the literary with writing the uncanny and yeah and that's that's the fascinating thing is that actually um i think just by avoiding it i was just doing myself a disservice really (laughs) um and actually just sticking with it and there's lots and lots of writers who are writing literary fiction that is within the weird or the uncanny or the gothic is they're going through quite a moment at the moment as well and there's lots of writers doing that who are considered literary writers uh, interestingly they don't always consider themselves literary writers but it's just the way they're marketed is with that general fiction kind of in the front of story instead of the, the fantasy horror fiction hidden somewhere at the back <laughs> we're really excited for writing the future actually that's coming out later this year so writing uncanny has been massive um uh we didn't really i mean we thought we, we thought it was a good idea when we came up with it we thought it was going to be good but it just seems to have really um touched a nerve and i think it's partly been driven by creative writing departments and students as well as you know people who are just wanting to learn writing for themselves because it, it treats it seriously it's not like a how to write like a trashy genre horror novel it's like this is this is something you can be serious about and it can be fun and it can be scary and odd and weird. And actually, that can produce some really interesting results and some really interesting fiction. I'm hoping we're doing something the same with the Writing the Future one, because I feel like in many ways, science fiction is a really better known and better defined genre. It seems to have much clearer boundaries than the kind of horror, uncanny, weird, which we always tend to put slashes and <laughs> never quite manage to define exactly what we're talking about with a lot of it. But we've tried to kind of do the same. We've tried to kind of go science fiction adjacent. So there's a lot of stuff on uh, kind of dystopia or post-apocalyptic stories. There's a lot of stuff on eco-fiction. There's a brilliant essay by Maura McHugh on uh, 2000 AD and how that's had like this kind of lasting after effect on kind of British psyche and the whole kind of vision of the future that it had. There's a wonderful piece by Una McCormack on how it's really similar to writing historical fiction which when she first pitched it, I was like, huh. And then once I read it, I was like, oh, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> it's very clear. It is exactly the same as writing historical fiction. 
And we realised part of the way through, actually, that, um, that, of course, Star Wars always opens with a long, long time ago in a, a galaxy. A long, long time ago oh, right. in a galaxy. It's like, you know, always. it is historical fiction. Star Wars is historical fiction. Yeah, it's been really interesting pulling it together and seeing everyone else's ideas. But I think, again, like with Uncanny, it's created something where people can kind of just delve in and get different ideas. So it's not really a writing guide, although there are a couple of essays that are a bit more geared towards kind of coming up with sci-fi ideas and things. But it's kind of just uh, hopefully throws the whole thing wide and for people who are just interested in writing, even if it's not science fiction, like hard science fiction, if you just want to write something post-apocalyptic or a bit of eco-fiction or whatever, hopefully it kind of just gives different viewpoints. And I think it ties back to what we were saying at the beginning, actually, because I think it's that having different viewpoints, being exposed to different viewpoints is really useful. And then you can just cherry pick what it is that works for you or what it is that you want to investigate or play with or whatever, without necessarily having to completely buy into a whole sort of set of rules. I think that's part of the pleasure of actually of having it as an anthology as well, rather than just a single author or a couple of author book, is that it gives lots of different viewpoints and things that I had certainly never considered. And I suspect most people reading it probably never considered. We're just starting to work on the third one as well, <laughs> which should be next year, hopefully. Am I allowed to ask or are you not saying yet? It's not been announced yet, but it is, it's basically crime adjacent as well. So it'll be a crime one, but it'll be much more about uh, kind of noir and... Um, psychological suspense as well and yeah so not just your whodunits but a little bit of whodunit probably so they've they've all been that sort of center of the not entirely quantifiable or nameable storm for each yes yeah and we've all got like we 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 keep referring to it as being like genre adjacent this is like our phrase that we've used it's genre adjacent writing and because of that we brought in quite a lot of what are considered to be literary writers but who write within that kind of form as well. So like the right in the future one, we've got Toby Litt. Now, Toby Litt's not known as a sci-fi writer, but actually he's written a lot of sci-fi and he teaches sci-fi uh, on his university course. And actually he knows sci-fi really well. So whilst he's not considered that because he's been sold to us as a literary writer, I think he in many ways is a sci-fi adjacent author. Yeah, it's um, just reminding me of another of my favourite authors, Leanne Moriarty, who from a mystery and thriller point of view from getting you to care enormously about what happens is absolutely pitch perfect in terms of pacing and plot but every cover is pink it is bright pink or or, or pink adjacent (laughs) shall we say I think a lot of the reason for that is she uses a great deal of humor that makes it very approachable and familiar and familial but it is absolutely thriller in the bones and you don't you wouldn't get Sarah Pimbra in pink <laughs> there's a yeah. cover line and, it, <laughs> and it, it does in that particular case make me quite sad when the adjacency if that is a word it is now doesn't necessarily serve a potential wider readership and it's so important to invite wider readers in isn't it because the way that you're doing it you're letting all of those doors be open yeah i mean and this is one of the things we said to people when we first approached them about writing for any of these anthologies is that we're we're pretty much open to like any angle or approach so they've all been full of uh, everything ranging from kind of personal essays right through to kind of more academic essays or kind of writing guide stuff because that, that was something we wanted to do is we wanted to have it as being like a 
an all-inclusive uh, kind of, I don't know, hot pot of lots of different things and just kind of see what comes out of it. I tend to approach anthologies in general like that, to be honest, not just this. I mean, even the fiction anthologies that I've done has generally been the same. And I've, I've been told by at least one writer that, that, that they liked writing for me for that very reason, because they were basically just allowed to write whatever they liked. <laughs> On that, um, what would you advise or would you advise writers who are new to approaching anthologists any advice or other words I got, yeah i got asked that at the event of yorks and john and it's interesting because I've, I've i've just kind of come up with my own system for it as i've gone along i never really kind of learned how to do it or developed a particular way of doing it i mean i'm, I'm very bored the way i see it is that it's the writer's jobs to write and just pursue their ideas wherever their ideas take them. And then it's the editor's job to make it work <laughs> in an anthology. So uh, because of that, mine tend to be quite varied in terms of content, probably more so than some. Um, and also in terms of the types of writers. That has its own challenges because then when you start approaching people, it means you're casting the net so wide that it's like, well, you, you want to have a bit of diversity in there. So you've got to make sure that you're casting wide, but at the same time, you're you're keeping a decent gender balance. Uh, you're maybe having some emerging and developing writers coming up as well as some established writers. And then, of course, you have to approach those in different ways. So the way you approach an established writer is very different to the way you'd approach someone who's just emerging, whose work you just like. Because the person who's just emerging, whose work you like, is, is probably going to jump at the chance, frankly. They normally do. Whereas the... To be honest, the, the established writers generally do as well, but it's more an issue of whether they have time or not. I mean, this is the biggest thing that we come up against is not that I don't want to. It's just I just don't have time. I'm just far too busy. I can't commit to writing something. So a lot of it's luck of the draw, to be honest. And especially with the, the bigger names, it's it's approaching a whole bunch of people in the hope that one or two of them will say yes, um, because they are just all so busy all the time. Occasionally you get very lucky and you'll approach someone and they'll say, actually, I've got an idea that's just perfect for that. Or even sometimes, actually, I've already written something that's just perfect for that. What that's about, kind of... on the, sorry, on the, other, on the other side of that, for writers wanting to approach people like you who are doing anthologies, anything on that or is that just a no? <laughs> it's funny, I've had a couple of approaches. I'm never quite sure what to do with them. I mean, I kind of, I, I think there are different types of approach, to be honest. There are people that that you know so you've you've met them at conventions or in some cases i published them before when i was doing shadow booth kind of early on and because of that i'm kind of aware of them and then I, you know sometimes i'm actually friends with them other times it's just like you know i kind of know who they are and they know who i am and we've maybe had a conversation or two or an email conversation so if they get in touch and kind of say next time you're doing an anthology maybe drop me a line because i'd love to write something for you i think that's totally fine i think a really just a cold approach is quite odd and i never know what to do with it <laughs> I mean, if it was like, you know, sure, if Stephen King sent me a cold approach, yeah, <laughs> you can write something for me. But um, <laughs> for most of them, it's, it's people who are trying to break into markets and anthology markets. And I don't know, it's difficult. It's kind of like, I kind of feel like if I don't know who that person is and they've just approached me, my immediate question is, if I don't know who you are, chances are not many other people know who you are. So it's what gives you what so far is your platform or area of expertise to yeah be this, which is of course different to fiction yeah it depends as well i mean in an ideal world i'd love to be able to do open submissions for everything but it's just not feasible sometimes just partly because of the sheer volume we get for open submissions nowadays and i swear it's more than it's ever been i mean i 
the one I keep bringing up is um, the Mark Morris anthologies that he does for Flame Tree. It's not unusual for him to get like 800 submissions. And that's a ridiculous number. I mean, fortunately, um, so they have a filtering process where it's read by a team of readers first, and then they pass what they consider to be the better ones onto Mark, and he makes final decision, which is a very good way of working it. Because you can't possibly give 800 stories to one person and say, you've got to read through all of these 800 stories and pick four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just impossible. Uh, another way of doing it, I know Brian Evanson has edited a special horror edition of McSweeney's that's coming out later in the year. And for that, they uh, literally opened submissions until the first hundred submissions were in, uh, which, as it turned out, took less than an hour. <laughs> Gosh. So, but again, there's a filtering process there, isn't there? Because then it's the people who are actually really paying attention to the scene and are very organised and together and professional are the ones who manage to get their submissions in. And I think there's kind of a, there is kind of a lesson there on, like, you know, if you are professional about things and pay attention to it and try and be a part of the community and part of the scene, then opportunities will present themselves rather than chasing the opportunities without trying to do any of that legwork, mm. which I do occasionally see. Uh, you know, I've occasionally got emails from people who I've never heard of just kind of saying, I loved your anthology. Would you consider something of mine for the next thing you do? And I'm like, well, no, because apart from anything else, I don't know what the next thing I'm going to do is. I mean, <laughs> um, it might be something that this is completely unsuitable for. Um, would that know. would that include fiction? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Because anything apart from anything else, I mean, a lot of it's to do with um, with genre and things. So the next thing I'm working on is very much more. It still uh, has a slight horror leaning, but it's much more kind of fantasy and dark fantasy. So a lot of horror writers, if they've read, you know, if you were a horror writer and you'd read Isolation. And you thought, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'd like to be in one of his anthologies and you sent me something. It's going to be totally unsuitable for the next thing I'm doing. Yeah. For me, it's much more useful if people have had stuff published. It's perfectly fine to get in touch with me and say, you know, I've, I've been published here and here. Uh, I'd love to write something for you at some point. If you'd like to read any of my stories, let me know and I'll send you a PDF or whatever. That's great. But I think you need to have been published first and, you know, in magazines and kind of worked your way up a little bit personally to, before you can really do that because otherwise it is just completely cold it's a completely cold approach and it's like I've almost got nothing to hang it on it's kind of like I don't know who you are I don't know what you've done so probably no <laughs> speaking of no one of the things that you said when you came to talk to our business of writing module at Roehampton that I I both loved and felt sad at the same time was that that phrase of expecting the no yeah as a good way in yeah, I mean, it totally is, because, I mean, it's it's partly for me, it's having worked at the other end of things, as having worked for Unsung Stories and for other publishers at times as well, that it really is that that's just the default. You can be a brilliant writer and you'll still get no's from people just because we have really limited capacity to publish things. We cannot say yes to everybody. In fact, we can only say yes to a very small minority of the stuff that comes in. So it's not necessarily a judgment call. It can be a judgment call. Sometimes it just isn't good enough. And this is partly the problem, is that it's difficult to separate the no that is just a form no because they're very busy and you didn't quite make the cut from the no that is a no because this was actually no good. (laughs) And they basically look the same which is, I think, what's the, partly the problem and that is very confusing. If you get very nice editors for books or journals and things, if you get nice ones, they will sometimes ask you to submit something again. That normally does mean that you're, you're close to the cutoff. That is good. It just wasn't right for them at the moment. But do definitely send them something else. 
with my kids at the moment it just reminds me actually with my kids at the moment, i'm very much encouraging them about uh, that whole line about the um kind of fail again fail better mm. uh quote it's very much that it's like you know what for most of us nothing we ever write is going to be like some major award-winning piece of writing it's just not for most of us ever going to happen um just by law of averages so i think it's this kind of accepting okay i some of my things i do will fail i mean i have stories that have just got multiple no's i have stories that i just got a yes first thing i submitted them to that's just the way it goes and i do think that is part of the um the strength of the write everyday advice is that there's no point in writing one story or one novel manuscript even and putting all of your hopes and dreams into that because there's a very good chance that it's just not going to land, <laughs> basically. Or even if it does land, it's not going to turn out the way you thought or hoped it was going to turn out. And so there's a real strength, I think, in keeping pushing forward, keeping working. You know, when you finish something, start thinking about what the next thing you're going to do is. And I've spoken before about I, I quite often have two or three projects going on at once, but they're quite often different types of projects. So quite often it will be a non-fiction anthology and a fiction one and a piece of writing I'm doing or something like that. And it's keeping all that stuff kind of going at the same time. And what I will do is I will, when I concentrate on one, I am just concentrating on that. So it's not a case of me kind of literally trying to do all three at once. It will be very much, okay, today I'm going to sit down, I'm going to work on this piece of writing. I had no uh, editing work or anything on last week. So I sat down and spent two days writing a short story and doing nothing else, which was lovely. <laughs> it felt, yeah, it was just like, I've not done that in a long time. But yeah, it's it's just constantly thinking of that what's the next thing i'm going to do what's the next thing i'm going to do having ideas already in the bank so you don't reach the end of a project with nothing left on the horizon and i think the, the like i said the danger there is it's a danger in terms of writing in your writing career but it's also a danger in terms of your mental well-being because you've piled everything into this i mean with novels even if it's a su successful novel it's not going to be published for at least two years possibly three even if it gets picked up quite soon so you know, you need to be working on the next thing and thinking, well, what is it I'm going to be doing next? And keep constantly having ideas in the bank. And again, this is part of the whole business of uh, spending time doing the business of writing. I think part of that is coming up with ideas as well. So not just focusing on one thing, have a book of ideas or keep them in your head or whatever works for you. But It sort of feels to me like the way that it works for me anyway is moving from the concept of advice to the concept of transcribe what is in your head. So it's permission more than advice. Get that stuff out. Don't feel like any one of them has to be the perfect, amazing thing. Yeah. Just keep moving forward. And I had to say, uh, it was when I was um, teaching a creative writing course in uh, Leeds at Leeds Lit Fest. Someone asked a question. I can't remember the exact question. But I had to say to them, that in all honesty, I don't have a set process for writing, say, a short story. Because I do it differently every time, depending on what the story is that I'm writing. So, I mean, like the one I just wrote, actually, the one I did last week, I'd, I've never done like a sort of a found footage type story before. Uh, and I thought, well, hell, let's do that. But let's, I decided what I was going to do is I was going to write, it was, it's, it's audio tapes. So I was going to write the transcription of each audio tape from like various different characters and hopefully capture their different voices and then use that old fashioned cut up technique and kind of cut them into sections and mix them all up and, and try and create a story that way. I've never done that before. Uh, and I probably will never do it again. But for that story, that worked and that was the way to do it. And it's just having kind of different tools in your toolbox. And I kind of think that, again, going back to like reading different writing guides, that, that, that helps, I think, is having different tools in your toolbox. So when you come to a problem in your writing or come to a particular challenge for something you want to write, 
you say, well, okay, well, I've never done this, but maybe I can try it here and see if it works. Maybe it won't work. Maybe it would be awful, but at least I'll know. <laughs> at the end of this episode, I'm going to be giving people a creative tool and a professional business of writing tool. If you fancy adding ones, I'm wondering, are there any career tools or creative tools, diagnostics, games that you like? I tend not to, to be honest, but what I do tend to do, which I think is very connected to that, is I tend to kind of disappear down rabbit holes. <laughs> so I like, I mean, like the story I did last week is, is largely based around like sort of 90s grunge explosion in Seattle. And so for a while, I just listened to a load of grunge music. I kind of disappeared until there was a really good pictorial book on the grunge scene. And I actually know someone who was around at the time in Seattle. So I kind of uh, shared a few messages with them uh, about what it was like and kind of who the big bands were and all that kind of stuff. But I just, I like disappearing down rabbit holes like that. And I think I like kind of almost a collage approach to writing as well, where you take something like that and take something like found footage and maybe take another idea as well, which there was another idea, which I won't say what it was, but which was like the core of the story and kind of mix those three elements all together and find what you come up with. And I kind of like taking that kind of collage approach where you're not like, okay, I'm going to write a werewolf story. It's like, okay, I'm going to write a werewolf story and it's going to be set in the 1940s because I'm really interested in the 1940s at the moment. <laughs> and it's going to be, I don't know, something else. But, you know, it's going to be structurally really different in some way. And then combining all those elements and then that makes it something new and something interesting because you've, A, you've mixed things up so it's not what people are used to seeing for that type of story. But also, B, it makes it much more personal to you because you're following the roots which are very interesting to you uh, and that's kind of what my my rabbit hole diving tends to be it tends to be well, i'm really interested in cults and mind control and things another one last year i disappeared down a bit of rabbit hole on that for a while but yeah i kind of like doing that that kind of collage approach of taking probably three maybe four elements of things that i'm interested in but in different areas whether it be like topics or eras or whatever and then mixing it all up I use travel sometimes as well, actually, having done travel writing in the past. I sometimes use it like a different location as a, a travel element to it. And that's exactly, that's lovely. It's exactly what I meant by permission is that those three or four that you pick, only you will have made those synaptic pathways yeah. to this to this thing. Yeah, and it does, and it makes it uniquely yours. And then you can write something like a vampire story or a werewolf story or whatever, and it won't just be the complete cliche that everyone is used to because you're already doing all this odd stuff with it, which is very uniquely you. And I think for me, it's been a really good approach. It did come partly out of, I, I, did, I quote it all the time and I've absolutely no idea who said it, but I read it in something somewhere and it was a woman writer and I can't remember who said that she spent a long time thinking, she kept the notebook of, of ideas basically. And she'd come, she'd come and she'd pick an idea from her notebook of ideas and she'd try and write that idea and they always kind of fell a bit flat and she wasn't really getting where she wanted to be with them until she suddenly realized that instead of like hanging on to the, all these ideas forever, she was going to take every idea she had at the moment, put all the ideas in this one thing <laughs> and then come up with a bunch of new ideas for the next thing that she did instead of like hanging on to them like they were precious jewels, like use them and combine them and allow them to play off of each other. And I find that really kind of fertile. It's slightly chaotic, but I kind of, I, out of that chaos, I think you can really produce something quite unique and unusual and something that keeps you engaged and interested as well there's nothing worse than getting halfway through writing something and realizing that you're bored with it mm. <laughs> and that way of 
you not remembering who did the writing version of that, I'm now going to not remember who did the TED Talk version of this about not keeping things for best, about yes. not not burning that candle and then finding 10 years later it's melted all over the place, you know, about making the things live. And not it is exactly that, best. isn't it? Yeah, it is exactly that. And, and, and otherwise, you'll end up with a great idea that sat in your notebook for 10 years that you just never used or got around to using because you were saving it for a rainy day. And, you know, the way our brains work as writers, at least if we I think if we're genuinely destined to be writers, is you will keep coming up with ideas and some will be rubbish and some will be good. And everyone develops their own filtering process. Mine tends to involve going for long walks, trying to work them through in my head. And if they stick around for a few days and I've walked and thought about it and it's actually I'm like, yeah, I want to write this. This is exciting. Those other ones I kind of get partway through it. And I'm like, yeah, that's not working. <laughs> And that's kind of my filtering process. So I tend not to do it on paper, but that's partly just because I have kids and I do lots of walking to and from school. And <laughs> um, this is the time that I have to be able to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a beautiful example of something that I'm very passionate about is not waiting for time to look like you think it's supposed to, but working out how to use the time that you actually have to the advantage yeah. of your stories. Yeah, I mean, when our when our um our first kid was first born, and actually right through till when because they're three uh, three years apart, I basically wrote uh, flash fiction for a long time because I just didn't have time to sit down and work on something longer. Uh, and I was trying if I did try and write something longer, it would stretch out over weeks and weeks, and I'd end up losing the thread of it, and I was tired and all the stuff that comes with parenthood. And so instead, I started writing flash fiction, and I actually taught myself to type uh, kind of one handed on a um, on an iPad. So I could actually have the baby in one arm while with them asleep and I'd be sitting there typing out the story with my other hand. And it just kept it just kept it going. And it was fine for that period. And it fit for that period. And I had a few successes getting kind of some flash fiction and things published. But then when it kind of kept me ready so that once they got a bit older and I was able to sit down and do things again, I, I wasn't rusty. I was, I'd still been writing through it. I'm now enjoying the idea that that could be someone's first memory because I have an early memory of hearing a typewriter. And I'm wondering if this is going to be your child's first sort of indoctrination into writing. I tell you what was amazing when I, I actually took um, the uh, 11 year old to see a kids author at Waterstones in London. And we queued up for ages and ages and it took forever. And we finally got there and he was really excited to meet the author and got it signed and stuff. And then afterwards I said, okay, while we're here, uh, we'll go and see if they've got my book in my isolation anthology, because that was relatively new out at the time. We went around there and they were expanding the horror section and they had like 12 copies of isolation. And so they, they put them on a table for me and I got to sign them and stuff. And he was stood there with the biggest grin on his face. And I just thought, this is such a nice memory that he actually remembers like me signing books in a big bookshop and stuff. And, uh, and I, knowing that authors are people who write rather than some magic other species. Yeah. Yeah. I just like doing. And he actually said something about it. Like it was funny being like on the other side of the desk because having seen like, you know, having been on the signing side of the desk. <laughs> funny, he was on the author side of the desk with me while I was signing those. And it was. It was kind of interesting. I just, I don't know what it, you know, I, I don't know what that, my life would have been like if I'd seen that kind of stuff early on, because it's taken me a long time to realise that that's, uh, that's a job. That's a, that's a job that's out there that you can actually do. And it may not be your only job. I mean, it's one of about four jobs that I do, but it's fun. I like it. <laughs> and it's taken me a long time to realise that actually that's kind of one of the things I wanted to do, not necessarily have a massive debut novel. That will then bomb and <laughs> and I'll have all the pressure of that and I, I would probably would have completely folded under the pressure if I'd if I'd been a 20 something who'd got my debut novel published the one I wrote around that time I have seen it again and it is awful uh, <laughs> so it would have probably been ripped to shreds 
and I would have failed and I might never have written a word again. So sometimes I think the slow path and the building up things, building up community, building up the tools in your toolbox, uh, working out exactly what it is you want to do. Although it's the slow path, I think it works. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have quite a lot of very good writers in their kind of 40s and 50s and 60s is because sometimes taking the long way there is the best way rather than just firing a book out when you're 2021. In all honesty, I'm aware in the past that I've been very uh, against the write every day advice. If write every day works for you, absolutely do it. (laughs) But I think nobody should feel bad because they've done it and uh, they've failed at it or they feel they've failed at it. They've not managed to write every day or they've done it and the writing they've done has not been good or whatever. Uh, maybe that's just not your way of working. But being a writer every day, even if not writing every day, yeah. but n- knowing you are a writer every yeah. day. Thinking about something. things and, and reading and you know, thinking about stories, coming up with ideas. Today's exercise is one of my favourites to give you confidence as a freelancer. All I need you to do is have a piece of paper and a pen and write your name in the middle of a massive piece of paper where you have lots of space for thinking on the page. Coming off that cloud or circle or whatever your name is in at the centre of the page, please draw as many spider legs, or it can be a mind map if you're arachnophobic, but for the sake of argument, as many spider legs as you can do and start writing your interests. It can be things you do, it can be things you love, it can be absolutely anything. The more random, the more used to include it. And what I'd like you to do is have a look over those and circle three. Maybe you've circled the ones you're most passionate about, maybe you've circled the ones that are so random you think, well that can't possibly have anything to do with anything. And then what I'd like you to do is put one of those words and the word magazine or journal into Google and see what you come up with and dare yourself to pitch an idea to that. Obviously, respect that audience, read the magazine, get to know it, get to know what it likes, and have a go at writing as if you already had that commission. Get that idea out there. You've already learnt so much from doing that. You've already shown yourself that your interests are already part of your job as a freelance writer. And you've shown yourself that you can identify a house style and write to it. Like Dan says, expecting the no can be an optimistic thing because it makes you realise it's absolutely nothing to do with you when you're rejected sometimes, but sometimes you're not rejected. And every time you learn something more about yourself and writing. So work your way through those pitches that you've just got an entire map of ideas for. There's no hurry, but keep thinking on the page. To visit the Writer's Gym in real time, visit rachelknightley.com.